0: The third man walking i wasn't planning on doing any new episodes for a while but the arrival of the coronavirus has a lot of people bored if not scared and so i thought i would do an episode about a movie that most of us can watch now from our homes uh while we're while we're all stuck inside to live in los angeles is to live at the beginning of the end of the world the city is at perpetual risk of ruin from earthquakes and especially wildfires that seem to get closer and more destructive by the year. And even many aspects of Los Angeles that don't directly threaten its habitability can feel like carpenters of the apocalypse. The traffic, the massive wealth disparities, the new-agey faddishness of some of its residents. So when something like the coronavirus comes along, it feels especially foreboding in Los Angeles, even though, as I write this on March 15th, LA hasn't been hit as hard as some cities farther up the West Coast. I'm currently in my third day of isolation. I spent the last few days before that playing poker, as I usually do, passing grimy chips back and forth with a rotating cast of other players. As it became clear the virus was about to affect lots of people in the US, I began avoiding the largest and dirtiest rooms. In the games I did play, the virus was the only thing anybody talked about. There was speculation about when the casinos might close, when public safety would finally overwhelm the population's need to gamble. I began to wonder whether games might actually get better the more dangerous conditions became, as tighter, more cautious players stayed home, leaving only the degens behind. The casinos finally did close over the weekend. It feels like the world has been paused. Right now, that really just means I'm a little bit bored, and there are far worse things to be. If you're unable to work because you have a job in the service industry or for some other reason, I hope you're able to get back to work soon. And I hope all of you out there stay healthy. Since most poker players are at home, today I'd like to present a special episode on the seminal poker movie, Rounders, which is currently available on Netflix. If you haven't seen it recently, consider this an invitation to watch it again today with fresh eyes. Rounders is more than a classic within the poker community. It's more than a movie. It's part of the game's history. Ask a poker player when he got interested in the game, and Rounders will probably come up almost immediately right after someone mentions Chris Moneymaker's win in the 2003 World Series of Poker main event. My opinion of the movie has changed over the years. I can't remember when I first saw it, but it was before I started playing poker. On first viewing, I found it fascinating as a glimpse into an underworld where players' fortunes turn not only on luck, but on their ability to outmaneuver one another. I watched Rounders again after becoming a player myself, and my opinion of the film shifted as i tried to find my way in the poker world the hands played in the movie were unrealistic i thought and the film depicted a culture of degeneracy that i didn't relate to and didn't really see since i mostly played online and didn't know many other players i've returned around her since then though and seen something else a movie that depicts cruel twists and turns that happen not only because of bad luck, but also because of its characters' deeply irresponsible decisions, a movie about the colorful characters gambling attracts, and most importantly, a movie that added plenty of color of its own. So let's walk through what happens here. And spoilers ahead, just in case there's anybody who's gotten to this point in the podcast without having first seen Rounders. As the movie begins, we see Mike McDermott, a law student and part-time poker pro, putting his entire bankroll on the table in a high-stakes underground game, despite the warnings of his grinder friend Joey Kanish, and losing all of it in a massive cooler against mob boss Teddy KGB. And right off the bat, this was the first of many points in the movie where, as a young person who had never played poker, I thought, if I played poker, I wouldn't do this. You don't put enormous portions of your net worth on the table, and it need not be true that, as Kanish puts it, time to time everyone goes bust. I've never gone bust since I started playing cash games. I remember withdrawing $800 from my bank account in 2015, and I've been playing on that ever since. And it's not because I'm great at poker, it's because it's important to me not to have to quit or have a backer or take on debt. That said, Some poker players do essentially put all their money on the table at once. Rounders isn't unrealistic in that way. And a movie about, say, Knish's life or mine would be a lot less interesting than this movie is. Anyway, Mike tells Knish he's getting out of poker and asks Knish for work driving his delivery truck. That plot point didn't make much sense to me until I read that Knish's character was based on a real poker player named Joel Bagels Rosenberg who owned a bakery truck. Rosenberg also said the line, in the poker game of life, women are the rake, which Edward Norton's character Worm says later in the movie. We fast forward to nine months later. Mike is still driving the truck and slogging through law school. While running an errand, he happens upon a poker game one of his professors is hosting with his colleagues in the legal business. He stands behind the professor during a hand and has the professor raise in one round of betting and then follow up with a barrel on a later street. While the other players are pondering their action, Mike tells each of them what they have. A pair of threes, two pair, a busted flush draw, a pair of queens. He's correct in each case, and they all laugh in amazement as the professor takes down the pot with a missed straight draw. The poker scenes in this movie are all unrealistic in one way or another, but this one was the least realistic of all. There are times in poker where you're able to guess an opponent's hand specifically, but they're rare, and correctly putting several opponents on several wildly different hands seems close to impossible. We meet Mike's girlfriend, Joe, who's keen to keep him in law school and out of poker. The concerned, significant other is a common character in the poker scene. In Joe's case, she's seen her man blow a $30,000 bankroll in a single hand, so she's right to worry. Being the boyfriend or girlfriend of a poker player isn't easy and late nights and variants can end relationships quickly. The next day, Mike picks up his childhood friend Worm as he gets out of jail. To this point, we've only seen Mike play honest poker. But Worm thinks about things differently. His leather jacket and toothpick are the uniform of an old-school hustler, and he soon shows Mike he's become skilled at manipulating the deck, cheating. Worm has debts he needs to pay off, so Mike drops him off at a game in a wealthy suburb and then, after some hesitation, joins in himself. Worm deals Mike one winner after another, and the pair cheat together en route to a handsome prophet. The cheating in this movie used to bother me. I don't cheat at poker, and as far as I know, none of my friends ever have either. For the first several years I played, cheating wasn't a significant part of my experience. The fact that the hero of the preeminent poker movie cheated seemingly did poker a disservice during a period in which it was fighting for mainstream respectability. In retrospect, though, I think that was the wrong way to look at it. First, the movie depicts a time period in which cheating really was, as far as I know, rampant in backroom games. Second, it's better cinema than a movie about honest poker players would be. And third, cheating in poker has always been present and isn't going away. Just during the era in which I was annoyed at rounders for depicting cheating, I was playing on full tilt poker, which turned out to be a pyramid scheme. Just before that, the poker clients Absolute Poker and Ultimate Bet were at the centers of scandals in which some players could see the other players' hole cards, and more recently, Stone's Gambling Hall near Sacramento hosted live streams in which a player named Mike Postle pretty clearly, allegedly, cheated his opponents out of hundreds of thousands of dollars. Today, private games are still very much the Wild West, and stories abound of players getting cheated in those. Most poker players don't cheat. And by and large, casinos do a good job protecting players against cheaters. But most of the poker in rounders takes place in underground games, and in that context, the focus on cheating in the movie is probably proportionate. The movie could be fairly described as condoning cheating to an extent. Mike approvingly quotes the 19th century con artist Canada Bill Jones, who said, It's immoral to let a sucker keep his money. But it would be boring if all movies wagged their fingers at bad behavior every time it's depicted. Anyway, Mike stays out all night with Worm, then lets Worm play on his credit at a game back in New York. Personally, I never risk my bankroll and good name letting someone like Worm play on credit, but Mike and Worm are friends, and poker players sometimes do let friendships lead them into financial trouble. A gangster named Grandma tracks Worm down and tells him he holds all of Worm's debt. He also takes all of Worm's winnings from the New York poker game, 2000 bucks Worm owed to the club we later learn that Grandma is working for Teddy KGB. Mike and Worm meet at Mike's apartment where they find that Joe has moved out. They then drive to Atlantic City to play legal poker at the Taj Mahal. Here we see Mike and his grinder friends effortlessly manipulating tourists. The tourists all make hammy faces that reveal the strength of their hands, and Mike and his friends know exactly how to respond. Again, I remember watching this scene for the first time, and as the tourists twitched and grimaced, I thought, If I played poker, I would not do that. By just sitting still, I thought, I could be a better poker player than many of these people. tells do exist, but they're also one of the first aspects of poker that players pick up on, thanks in part, I suppose, to rounders. So most players learn early on to try to conceal the strength of their hands. That means that playing the man, as we hear Mike describe in rounders, is more complex than waiting for a player to roll his eyes when his flush drop breaks. After face planning in a mock trial back at law school, Mike returns home to his empty apartment, where he watches video of Eric Seidel and Johnny Chan heads up in the real life 1988 World Series of Poker main event. Interesting side note on the final hand, the one McDermott is watching, Chan flops a straight. The movie makes it sound like Chan, by acting weak, has induced Seidel to bluff all in, but watching the hand now, I don't think that's actually what's happening. The pre flop action isn't available on YouTube but it seems Chan completes from the button with Jack-9, and Seidel checks his big blind with Queen-7. The flop comes Queen-10-8, giving Chan the nut straight and Seidel top pair. Seidel checks, Chan bets 40,000, and Seidel raises to 90,000. Chan calls. The turn is a deuce, and both players check. The river is a 6. Seidel moves all in, and Chan calls. We don't know how much Seidel's all-in was for, but it seems likely that stacks were very shallow. Seidel justifiably figured he had the best hand, and he shoved for value. Working backwards, it seems there was little reason for Chan to bet the turn, given that Chan could easily have just gone all-in on the river had Seidel checked. It wasn't that Chan set a brilliant trap. It was that both players had good hands, and there wasn't enough depth for Seidel to avoid getting stacked. Anyway, Worm is running out of time to pay off his debts and he and Mike go on a whirlwind tour of New York poker games to make 15000 bucks in less than a week. Mike quickly makes about half of that, and then the pair decide to drive to Binghamton to play in a game with a bunch of police officers, which to me is an odd choice, driving eight hours round trip to play in a game with a bunch of guys who aren't rich when you need to make almost $8,000 in two days. But okay, we're in Binghamton. Mike is winning on his own, and then Worm joins the game late and starts dealing Mike big hands. One of the cops catches Worm in the act. Mike and Worm end up on their backs out on the pavement, their bankroll gone. Desperate, Mike heads back to New York and tries to get a loan from Kanish, but Kanish, patient, practical, risk-averse, says no. Mike finally gets his professor to lend him ten grand. A sizable amount, but less than he needs. Mike returns to Teddy KGB's place, where Teddy, the guy Mike owes all this money to, agrees to let Mike play him in a $10,000 heads-up match. Mike defeats Teddy and now has enough money to pay off his debt to the mob, plus $5,000 to make a down payment to the professor. But wait. Teddy, who's already revealed his massive ego and or sadistic streak by playing Mike in a heads-up match for his own money, offers to play Mike again, for double the stakes it would of course be insane for mcdermott to accept given the potentially enormous cost of losing so naturally he does accept the movie treats this as some kind of heroic act but it's actually more horribly degenerate than anything i've ever personally witnessed in poker if mike wins the second match he still only has the money he started the movie with if he loses he's badly beaten or perhaps killed poker players don't do this don't put your entire bankroll in play especially if losing it literally gives the mob license to murder you. Anyway, Mike is struggling in the second match, until he notices a tell. When Teddy KGB has a strong hand, he eats an Oreo out of the kind of rack poker players use to carry chips to and from the cashier. I'd think a poker player with a tell this obvious wouldn't have been considered a strong player even in 1998. But hey, it's a movie. I've never seen a guy eat Oreos out of a chip rack but it feels like something someone might do at a home game, and if you saw it, you'd never forget it. Finally, Mike flops the nuts and checks every street, Johnny Chan style, as Teddy puts in one enormous bet after another and goes all in on the river. Mike shows his hand, and Teddy, played by John Malkovich in what has to be one of the more ridiculous performances in 90s movie history, freaks out, admits defeat, and tells Grandma to pay Mike. After paying all his debts, Mike now has $30,000, the same as he started the movie with. He plans to fly to Vegas and play in the World Series of Poker. Though the writers of Rounders later worked on other poker-related projects, There was no sequel to the movie, which perhaps is surprising given the poker boom a few years after its release, so we don't know what happened to Mike. But I'll speculate, he probably didn't make it. $30,000 is a totally reasonable sum for a young pro to play low-stakes live games, but instead of doing that, Mike blows it all, taking a ridiculous shot in a game that's about 20 times as big as he should be playing. Then he gets into more trouble by trusting a friend with a gambling problem. He gets his money back only after taking another series of ridiculous shots that literally require him to risk life and limb. Mike's gambling habits simply aren't sustainable. While there are successful pros who took crazy risks on their way to the top, Bryn Kenny comes to mind, they are the lucky ones. Most people who gamble as hard as Mike did quickly fall by the wayside. Kanish, who doesn't seem to have any massive leaks besides having a family and lending money to people like Mike, is far more likely to have money in his bank account right now. But even he probably isn't a poker pro anymore either. In fact, the entire movie is a tribute to an era of poker that's now gone. The online poker boom that followed Rounders professionalized the game, and now the entire poker world is at pains to avoid the griminess Rounders depicts. You can still find it, but you have to know where to look. A few years ago, I played in a tournament at Binion's on Fremont Street in Las Vegas. Most casinos you hear about in Las Vegas are on the Strip, which is the newer, more respectable part of town, but a couple are on Fremont Street, a lively corridor full of bad tacos, brightly lit but ancient-looking signs, and nearly naked street performers. The casino seemed like the kind of place that had been about to be remodeled for about 50 years and they never quite got around to it. I don't think I ate in any of the restaurants there and can't attest to their quality, but I imagine they were the kinds of places where you'd order a $6 steak and they'd bring out a bottle of A1 sauce. After a few levels in the tournament, my table near the front of the casino broke, and the staff led us to a back room where we kept playing. Casinos, like most businesses, usually try to keep customers from seeing employee spaces like break rooms and janitor's closets. But I remember my table was right next to an office. The door was wide open, and I saw a frayed carpet and computers that were at least a decade old. The next day, a player who had been famous early in the poker boom sat at my table, arriving with, I believe, both popcorn and a soft-serve ice cream cone they'd gotten somewhere nearby. The staff made a show of checking ID, even though they knew who this player was. Of course, shabbiness alone means nothing if a room doesn't also have charm. Commerce Casino here in LA is shabby without having a sensibility, and it's miserable. And even if a place is charming in a ratty sort of way, you can't play there unless games are safe from cheaters and thieves. And, on balance, it's nice to have salads and clean bathrooms. But I do feel something has been lost in poker as it's become increasingly professionalized. As the World Series moved from Binions to the Rio, and his action moved from Fremont Street and underground spots like Teddy KGB's, to the much nicer and more respectable casinos on the Strip and beyond. So the holes in the plot of Rounders now seem less important to me than the frequently outstanding writing. Who could forget Mike's line? I want him to think that I'm pondering a call, but all I'm really thinking about is Vegas and the fucking mirage, and the way it evokes a time gone by. Teddy KGB and his ridiculous yet 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 Russian accent, the burly enforcer who gathers Teddy's chips, the ratty decor. Grandma's fedora, the old man in tattered tracksuits, even the names of these players, Joey Kanish, Teddy KGB, Crispy Linetta, these kinds of guys are mostly gone now. Today, many of the faces of poker are clean-cut 28-year-olds from good homes who only think about poker and keto and add so little to the broader culture. And yeah, there are plenty of people creating poker-related cultural products, but we're mostly nice people whose lives are basically culturally palatable. And that's probably mostly a good thing. But we're losing something here. The best exception I can think of is the person who calls himself Blockhead. You can find him on Twitter at OUBlockhead. His tweets, all in the second person, are basically about the same guy, a loser who's trying to use gambling and cryptocurrency trading to avoid doing real work. He jumps from scheme to scheme and relationship to relationship, disappointing himself and various girlfriends along the way. Here's one. She holds your friend's WSOP bracelet. You stare at it. How much did you win? He tells her. Did you hear? She asks you. Yep. It's 50 times more than your biggest score. Whatever. You're a cash game player anyway. She tries on the bracelet. Do you give lessons? She asks. Or this one, from just last week. You play a home game in the hills. The bouncer runs temperature checks with a digital thermometer at the door. The game is about to start. The thermometer beeps. The table fish, a studio exec, has a fever of 101. There's a moment before someone asks how much he's buying in for. There's a sense of inadequacy and desperation here that, say, Worm might have appreciated had he been more self aware. Beyond that, there aren't many people making things today that both feel real and capture the griminess of poker. Although I quibble with some of the details and rounders, The movie depicted a bygone era and got the feel of it exactly right. Thanks for listening to Third Man Walking. You can find me on Twitter at ThirdWalking or send me an email at thirdmanwalkingpodcast at gmail.com.